This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. All right, friends, Mark chapter 7. We doing all right? Okay. All right. I like that. I like that. Uh, if you're new here, my name's Corey. I'm one of the pastors. Um, we, we try not to take ourselves all that seriously, but we do take God very seriously. Um, we think he's worth it. Um, and so it is okay to interact. It is okay to be relaxed. It is okay to not be okay. Um, God knows where you are, uh, and he's okay with where you are because he's greater than where we are. Uh, and so we're going to take everybody right where we are today, um, and we're just going to aim to take one step further. Uh, and so our hope, uh, more than anything, is that we will not just be a church where people uh, come and, and play church, do church, do the church service, but then go on in our lives or our own lives. We want to be a place where people actually engage with and encounter the living God of the universe. Uh, we believe God is living and active, um, and, and so we don't want to just passively go through life uh, with him kind of out there somewhere, but we want to walk through life knowing that God is here and with us. Uh, and so when we open up the, the Bible, um, when we go to Mark 7, we believe that these are God's words speaking to us. It's not me speaking to us. It's not me putting together some things. Um, it's God just simply using me to speak to us. Um, and so I'm praying that, that God will, will speak to us today as we, we read in Mark chapter 7. I um, read from Psalm 56, uh, which David wrote that psalm. Um, King David, I'm, I'm pretty sure that most of us, even if you've ha not had a church background, have heard of, of King David. Um, he's fairly well, well known um, throughout the world. Um, but his start uh, began uh, kind of choppy, right? In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Israel, one of Jesse's sons. And so Samuel tells Jesse, hey, bring your boys here, right? One of your boys is going to be the future king of Israel. That's what God is saying. And so Jesse goes, can you imagine getting that news, right? If someone's like, hey, one of your daughters is going to be the next queen of Israel the United States, right? Like the first queen of the United States, I don't know, right? It'd be like, okay, shoot, which one's it gonna be, right? And I'm, I don't even know, Michaela's over there with her colored pencils, it's maybe her with her organization. That's probably embarrassing, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> right, so it's just like, I can imagine the, the buzz, right? And so you're kind of looking at it and you're like, oh man, which, which one of my kids is it gonna be? And so, so Jesse, he grabs up his sons to bring them to Samuel so that Samuel can you know, size them up, measure them up. Which one of these boys is going to be the king of Israel? And so he brings all of his sons except one. He leaves one son, the, the youngest, the scrawniest, the least experienced, the one that surely it's not going to be him. Like, hey, stay in the field with the sheep, all right? Me and your, me and your brothers are going to town for some king business. And so Jesse shows up, and, and Samuel brings in the first one, Eliab, and Eliab is the oldest, he's the biggest, he's handsome, he's got military experience, right? Like, Jesse's looking at him, and Jesse's thinking, hot dog, this is him, right? Like, this is the next king of Israel, and God goes, Samuel, it's not him, it's not, it's not Eliab. And Samuel's like, but God, can, do you see his resume? Like, do you see his pedigree? Like, he is someone to be feared in battle. And God's like, no, no, no. And he says this in 1 Samuel 16, 7, and it gives us a view into the heart of God and how he views people. God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, 
because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God says, I I see differently than how you see. You're looking on the outward appearance. You're looking outside of the person to what makes sense to you, but I'm looking inside of the person. I'm looking at the heart of the person. That's what matters more to God. The heart, where a person's heart is, matters more to God than what is on the outside, what a person looks like, or even how a person may act. God is more concerned with the heart because the heart is the control center of a human being. Not just the organ, the heart, right? Like, yes, that's also going to control our lives, but But speaking as a whole person, in the ancient world, it's believed that what a person's heart, what a person loves is what that person is. What a person cares most about is ultimately what will trickle out. What starts inside, in the heart of a person, that's the steering wheel of a person's life. It's what directs and controls and ultimately dictates their life. And so God's like, hey, hey, if you're looking on the outside, you're, you're starting on the surface. You've got to go deeper and look at the heart of a person. And so today, I believe God is asking us, I believe God is asking you, I'm not asking it, I believe God is asking it, is where is your heart? Where is your heart with God? Is your, is your heart truly close to him? truly near to him? Do you truly love God more than anything? That's the greatest commandment, the Bible says, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The greatest, the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart above everything. Nothing else takes his spot, his preeminent place. And so the question I believe God is asking is, where is your heart? Mark 7 records yet another interaction between Jesus and his, his antagonist, his mortal enemy. Uh, Mike asked us the other night, he's like, who's your mortal enemy? And we're like, wow, that's, a, that's an aggressive statement, Mike. Um, th- these are Jesus' antagonists, the people who, who want more than anything to overthrow Jesus. From the moment Jesus stepped onto the scene and said, hey, everybody, I am the Messiah. I'm the promised one that that God said would come to save the world. The Pharisees and and the scribes that we see here in Mark 7 and the Sadducees were like, nope, mm -mm, we're not having it with this guy. We got to get rid of him. And so from that moment on, the Pharisees and the scribes were set against Jesus, wanting to, to shut him down and to overthrow him. They believed he was a liar. And they were like, we got to get rid of this guy, Jesus. And so they are his antagonists. But the interesting thing is, though, from the outside looking in, you would never know it. If you just looked at a Pharisee or a scribe, and you just looked at their life from the outside, you would think they were the people closest to God. They were at church every Sunday, They read the Bible. They memorized the first five books of the Old Testament before they were teenagers. I mean, like, they had that stuff in their life. I mean, they had their favorite Bible verses on the wall, right? Jeremiah, man, they're quoting Jeremiah 29 all day. God's got a plan for you. Prosper, right? Like, they've got their favorite stuff. They're saying stuff like, God bless you. I'm praying for you, brother. 
praying for you, sister. Like they're saying all the right things. Man, they're singing the songs. They didn't even have to look at the lyrics. They just got to memorize, right? And they're like, hey, turn to Deuteronomy. I don't need to turn to it. I got to memorize. They're serving the community. Like they're doing all of the things that from the outside looking in, you'd be like, these guys are crushing it. They're so close to God. And the Pharisees would be like, yeah, you're right. Pretty darn close to God. Like they really thought and believed in their heart based on all of the things that they were doing that the Bible says to do even. They were like, yeah, we're, we're really close to God. But Jesus had a different a different conclusion of them. In verse six, all right, Jesus is speaking of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite. And he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus, he, he gives a scathing rebuke of these incredible church-going men. He says, you hypocrites. You talk a big game of loving God, but your heart is far from him. You do all these outward things, but inwardly, your heart is nowhere near God. You hypocrites. The, the word hypocrite, I mean, we, we all probably know what that word means. It means a fake, a fraud. It means someone who, who portrays one thing, but really down deep, when you take the mask off, there's someone different. Right? It actually has the, the history of the word is based in the theater. Someone who would wear a mask to portray one character, and then later in the theater would take the mask off and you go, oh my gosh, they were someone different. That person was, was a hypocrite in their role. And so Jesus is looking at these church-going, Bible-reading, you know, God-singing song singers, and he's saying, you're hypocrites. You, you show this outward expression, everybody looks at you and thinks that you love God and you're so near to God, and you do all of these things, but inwardly, Jesus says, I see inside and your heart is far from me. It's far from God. It does not love God. I think that this passage is very important for us today because my experience for my own life is that for many people who've been in the church for a long time or who have been Christians for a long time, it's very easy to slip into this exact place where we show up on Sundays and we're here. And man, we're singing the song and we might even close our eyes and raise our hand. And there's this like feeling happening. And we got our Bible. We probably have a couple translations at home, you know, just sitting out on the shelf looking all good. We got our mug says faith on it you know got my highlighters taking notes got three journals not just one three you know I think it's really easy for us to get in this routine right of being around a bunch of people and we're we're doing the same motions but our hearts can actually be far from God we could even fool ourselves to thinking like man I am really loving God but but when we dig down deep, when Jesus were to get down deep in our heart, 
Would that be true of you? That on the outside, crushing it. Check, 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 check. Everyone around us, man, thinks that we're real close to God, but down deep, do we really love God more than ourselves? The heart of the Pharisees is that at the end of the day, they love themselves more than God. Their religion was just a means to their end. God was just a means to their end. So we've got to ask ourselves the same question. Would Jesus say the same of us? So why did Jesus say this to them? That's a strong statement, right? Like, how, how did he know? What, what tipped him off? So other than the previous chapters that all show that they want to kill Jesus, who's the son of God, right? That's, that's one thing, right? But let's just take chapter 7 here. What, what tipped Jesus off to the heart of the Pharisees? So if we go back to verse 1, it says, The Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes. So the scribes were the interpreter of the Old Testament, right? The, the Pharisees were like the, the, the preachers, the, the, the leaders, the super, the super religious, and the scribes were the ones that would interpret the law and say, yeah, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. But they worked in cahoots, right? They worked together. So you got the, fr- the Pharisees, or the fribes, if you just want to combine them, you know, you got the Pharisees and the scribes, and they come from Jerusalem. It's like a 90-mile trip. So they've come from Jerusalem, but for what purpose? And they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. Thank you, Mark. Go ahead and, go, he went, goes ahead and tells us what defiled means. They're unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And when the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So the Pharisees and the scribes, they come from Jerusalem at 90 miles, and they're like, Jesus, dude, what's up with your disciples? They didn't wash their hands properly before they ate. What's the deal, man? Why, why are they doing that? For, for them, they get this from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God commanded the priests to wash their hands before entering the temple. And God also commanded anybody, after touching any human um, discharge to wash their hands. That's good advice, right? That's, that's smart. So those are the commands of God. But God does not command, hey, every time you eat, you need to wash your hands properly. The, the commands that we see here of the, the pots and the couches, those aren't commands of God. Those are traditions and preferences that the Pharisees had add on, have added on top of God's commands. We'll get to that in a second. The first thing that fascinates me, though, about this, they've come 90 miles, and they see that they're not washing their hands properly. How in the world do you see if someone didn't wash their hands properly unless that is what you were looking for? Right, like, I I can't even keep up if I've washed my own hands, you know? 
I got, I don't know if my kids wash their hands or not. Like, the only way to know that is like to follow them around. I'm like, did you wash your hands, right? Was that five seconds? Was that warm water? Did you scrub? Did you get, you know? Like, how, how in the world do you know if someone washed their hands properly unless you are looking for them to trip up and slip up and make a, a mistake in some way? So the first thing you see here of the Pharisees that, that is symptomatic, that is evident of a heart far from God, is that they come in with a self-righteous condemnation of others. They've literally traveled 90 miles, and they're locked in on if they are going to obey the tradition. They are, they are looking for them to mess up and to slip up. And so we see that a heart that is far from God is someone that is quick to see and point out the shortcomings in another and slow to recognize their own shortcomings within themselves. A, a heart like a Pharisee that is far from God is, is prideful in their own thoughts of themselves, elevating their status while looking down on and condemning the shortcomings of others. That doesn't guarantee that their hearts are far from God, but it is a, a sure evidence that if we have a life that models this, there's a good chance that our heart is far from God. Could this, could this be true of us? Could this be true for you, that you're, you're quick to see the faults in another and slow to see your own faults? Is that something that, that we struggle with? We see that that's what they are focused on. That for, for them, they would probably hear Jesus say, Matthew, read Matthew 7, and they would think, oh, this is for someone else, right? Matthew 7, where, where Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your own eye, brother, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to help take the speck out of your brother's eye. A Pharisee, someone's heart who's, who's, hard, who's, who's far from God, is quick to see the speck in other people. The, the small speck of dust in their eye while neglecting to see the sequoia log just protruding from their own lives. They're looking down, they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, thought so, yep, and not realizing that they've got their own stuff to work with first. Hey, let's sit down and talk about you, shall we? I saw, I saw last week. And Jesus isn't saying like, hey, don't help your brother with a speck. Right, we're supposed to help each other with with the specks in our eyes. Jesus is just saying, hey, treat your own mistakes like a log before you then move to the speck in your brother's eye. But a Pharisee in someone, someone's heart who's far from God fails to see their own mistakes and their own shortcomings and faults and first looks down on and sees the mistakes in others. They think they're always right. They're never the wrong one. And Jesus is just saying, if you have that perspective, you'll never see your own shortcoming before God. If you always think you're right, you'll never see how far off you are before God and your need for his grace. 
Thus, your heart will be far from him. Do we see that pattern in our lives? Do we see that pattern of seeing the mistakes in others? Are you prone to be critical rather than compassionate? To criticize how someone else messed up, or man, if they only did this, right? Is there a critical spirit in you versus a spirit of compassion? That can be evidence of noticing the speck in someone else before our own log. When someone else wrongs you, does something wrong, do you major on their issues and minor on your own? When you're sitting down in a conflict, right, is your focus all on what they did wrong without starting with what you've done wrong? I I love this book, Resolving Everyday Conflict. It's a little book. Little books are good for me because I'm a great book starter, terrible book finisher. Um, And so I like little books, right? And it just gives very practical steps to, to bringing reconciliation and he says, he says, in every conflict, most likely both parties are bringing something to the table. Even if you are only 10% wrong, you own your 10%, 100% before you move on to their 90. Even if you're just, you're just bringing a small sliver of the issue, you own that 100% before you ever move on to theirs. That is the command of Jesus. But man, do we like to notice someone else's faults before our own. And what Jesus is saying here is that is a marker. That is something that will move us away from God, not toward him. Employees, right? Do you, do you notice a coworker also up for a promotion and all of their faults and shortcomings and why they shouldn't get the promotion first? Your boss, that good gracious, how in the world did she get that job? Gosh, so lazy, so incompetent. Do we start first by looking at where our coworkers are falling short and not focusing first on where we are falling short? Spouses, who's the biggest problem in your marriage? If the answer is anyone other than Myself, I'm probably majoring on their faults and minoring on mine. Church member, if, if the biggest issue in Austin Life Church is not me, I'm probably starting with the speck in someone else's eye and not the log in mine. Listen, the Bible's very clear. We are to help one another be free of sin. We are to help our brothers and sisters with the speck in their eye. We are just supposed to remove the log in our eye first. Man, conversations are a lot more gentle and gracious and humble when we come to it and say, hey, I need to own my mistakes. And then we move forward and saying, hey, I've noticed this too. How can I help with this? Versus walking up and being like, Another one I heard on the radio this morning, man, driving in this very morning on the, uh, I don't know, 92.5, something like that, right? And, and it said, when, when we see a fault in another, are we more prone to go and to vent to our friends, to complain to our friends about it, rather than just going to, directly to them? I think we need to be really cautious. We're bordering on gossip and slander. 
But man, it's so easy, right? I'm just, vent- I'm just venting, just getting it off my chest. No, we're probably gossiping. Jesus is driving into the heart. Do we notice the mistakes in others first? Because we've got plenty of our own to work on. A heart that is near to God is one of humility. Starts with self. Let me get the log out of my own eye, and then I'll move on to the speck with you. Man, these guys, they're just rolling in, self-righteous condemnation, looking for someone to slip up so they can complain. Looking for someone to mess up so they can condemn them. Gosh, may we not be a church like that. We'll tear each other apart and we'll all suffer because of it. So Jesus sees that um, self-righteous condemnation and the second thing he sees is evidence that their heart is far from God is that they have a greater concern and conviction for their own traditions and preferences than the very word of God itself. Right, and so Jesus says in verse seven, in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Then he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. I mean, Jesus gets sassy. I kind of like it, you know? For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the word of God void by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Four times he says it. Four times in seven verses. That's a lot of repetition, right? When you see that much repetition, it matters. Four times he gives some rebuke, some version of, hey, you do a fancy job, smarty pants, of elevating your own tradition and preferences over the commands of God. You're literally pushing down the word of God so that you can lift up your preferences, your traditions. How can you possibly say that your heart is near to God, that you love God if you love your traditions more than the word of God? Let me give you, let me give you an example. If you came and asked our kids, three of them are sitting down here on the front row. They, they love it when I preach. They're like, Dad, you talk too long again. And I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. You know, so if, I, if you were to ask them like, hey, do your parents want you to pick up after yourselves? Like, do they want you to clean up your trash and throw it away after yourselves? What, what would the answer be? Y- no? You're saying, <laughs> yes, they would all, don't listen to Macy, right? Yes, they all know, because we've said it 18 kajillion times, hey, let's not leave your socks and Cheeto package and juice box and, and candy wrapper and books like all piled on the living room floor. Why don't you go ahead and pick up after yourself, right? So they know what we would say. So if you come in our house one day and there they are like sitting on the couch and there's just a mountain of trash, never happens, right? It's just, it's just a mess, right? And you're like, hey, why did you not pick up after yourself? If they were like, it's because we love our mom and dad. That's why we didn't pick up after ourselves. You'd be like, what? No, that's not true. You don't love your mom and dad by not obeying their commands. You love them, you respect them when you take what they ask you to do and you, you then do it. 
not when you elevate your preference and your desires over theirs. Now, granted, most of the time, they're just not thinking about it, right? But if they really said, no, no, we are leaving this mess because we love our mom and dad, you'd be like, liar, hypocrite, right? You don't love your parents if you're elevating your preferences over theirs, and that's what they are doing. They're elevating their traditions, their preferences over God's word, and Jesus is saying, it's impossible for your heart to be connected to him when you want your way over his, when you want your traditions and preferences over his. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with traditions and preferences. We all have them. Every single one of us, we have traditions. Look, I am going to love instruments more than acapella as a norm. That's my preference. That's okay. It's okay to have traditions and preferences. The problem comes when we say, no, I'm going to hold so tightly to this tradition and preference that I then reject the word of God because I'm so set on my ways. Now, we would never do that, right? That's silly. We would never hold tightly to our traditions and preferences over the word of God. What about what people wear to church. I, I grew up, someone has literally taken the hat off of my head. Why? Well, because for them, their tradition is that it's a sign of disrespect. Okay, that's fine. That's great. But that's not the command of God. It's fine to have that tradition. It's fine for me to respect that tradition. But we can't judge someone or condemn them as wrong when God doesn't judge them or condemn them as wrong. We are called to dress in a way that doesn't attract attention on us and detract from attention on God. But, but gosh, that's a slippery slope. Does that then mean that we need to wear long sleeves and long pants all the time? No, it's a heart matter. Are we going to hold tightly to God's word or our traditions and preferences? Music. I mean, gosh, I man, that has straight split churches before, right? When people try to bring in an electric guitar, I think the devil's in the electric guitar, right? We chuckle, but man, there's some people that would, that tradition and preference, that's fine. If you want the organ and piano, exclusively with the choir in the robes. That's okay. We were in the choir, Thomas, me and you. Like, well, I wore the robe in college. It's crushing it, man. <laughs> Y'all didn't know that. Yeah. It was maroon, too. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> That's fine. But it's not a command of God that you can't have an electric guitar. And so we can't hold so tightly to our traditions and preferences that we then push people away and exclude people and tell them they are sinning because they have a different tradition and preference than us. Preaching. Man, some people are like, that better be done in 25 minutes or I am out. You're gonna have to find a different church. <laughs> I try, I really do, I try. I'm like, I gotta shorten this down. I gotta shorten this. And it just doesn't happen. I'm just too, I, I just talk too much, right? But, it's okay, it's okay. Right, if you're like, hey, that's my preference and tradition, okay, that's fine. 
But just know that if you're making a church decision based on tradition or preference, the next church you go to will eventually have some tradition or preference that's different than yours, and you will be an endless loop of trying to find the thing that fits you perfectly, and it never will. Right? We have to say, okay, what does the Word of God say here? Right? How do we honor God and love our neighbor best? And so there's so many ways where we can just be like, no, this is how I do it. I'm not budging. And Jesus would say, you, hold, you, you honor your tradition and preference more than the word of God. And it's a, it's a marker that your heart may be far from him. It's a marker because, because ultimately we want our way more than his. That's what it comes down to. And so these are the two marks we see, but what's amazing also is that they're actually leading people away from God and they don't even seem to care. Right? They're, they're leading people to their tradition and preference and away from the word of God and they don't even seem to care. Right? That's what he, Jesus says. is like the word, the Bible tells you to honor your father and mother but if you tell them, hey, whatever you gain from me is Corbin and so what that means, right, is in the Jewish culture as parents would get older then they would live with their children and the children would take care of their parents. That's how they honored their father and mother was to take care of their parents. But now the Pharisees are saying, hey, the money that you would give towards your parents, give it as a gift to God. But then you can tell your parents, like, no, no, this was a gift to God. It's holy. It's righteous. He's like, but you're then disobeying my word to honor your father and mother. And so he's actually leading, pe they're leading people away from God, not to God. Anytime we carry a self-righteous condemnation, we are not reflecting the character of God. And so our, we're going to lead people away from him, not to him. Anytime we hold tightly to our traditions and preferences over the commands of God, we are not leading people to God, we're leading people to us, to our ways and preferences. And so this is the heart that Jesus sees in them, is that ultimately they care more about themselves than they do about God. God is a means to their end. He is not the end. And that can be really, really subtle and sneaky in the church. Where we can gather and we can sing, but ultimately we're doing it for a feeling for us or because I feel a sense of obligation and duty and so I have to do this and it's not because I want to worship and give honor to God. Sometimes we, we discipline ourselves and we, we do things that don't feel so great, but if we're doing it, even though it doesn't feel so great, because ultimately we want to move closer to God, God's pleased with that. If you've ever learned any skill, if you're ever an athlete or a musician or an artist or an actor, right? Like, you, there comes times you're like, I don't want to practice. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to learn my lines. I don't want to work on this skill. Like, I just really don't. But I will discipline myself to do it because ultimately I care more about the end goal than I do about the practice. So sometimes these disciplines of coming to worship and reading our Bible and being in discipleship group are not always easy. And we're like, I don't really feel it right now. Should I go? Should I still do this if I don't feel it? Yes, if ultimately you want to honor God and you want to be close to him, it's okay if we don't feel it all the time. But if ultimately we're just looking for what feels good and feels right, we've probably drifted from wanting God and wanting more of our feelings and what feels good. 
Jesus is driving into the heart of it all. Ultimately, though, what, what moves them from God is that they, they're self-righteous. They trust in themselves and they love themselves more than they love God. Jesus, in the next verses, we, we won't read them all, but verse 14 to 23, he says, what, what comes out of a person is not what, what defiles, makes that person unclean. It's the heart of a person that makes that person unclean. Yes, what we do with our lives can honor or dishonor God, and he gives us a verse. He gives us a list, right? Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of those things do not honor God. Jesus is not condoning any of those actions. He's simply saying those actions are the fruit of a heart that is rooted in selfishness. And so you start with the root and the fruit will change. You start with the heart and the fruit will naturally change. And so Jesus' focus is not on washing of hands, not on tradition or preferences. Jesus' focus is on the heart of a person. Do you truly know, trust, and love God? The actions will take care of itself. The actions will they're just a window into the heart. You want to know if someone loves God? Yeah, so we were able to, to see, and it's a window into their heart. But the focus is the heart. That's what Jesus is driving to here. Where is your heart? Is it near God? Do you love God? Or are you more drawn towards yourself and your ways? I want to end just with reading 1 Peter briefly. I was reading that this, this week, 1 Peter. And so if we ask the question, why, why, would you, why would you want to love God today? Right, like, okay, it's clear Jesus is saying for us to love God more than anything else. Why? It's a fair question to ask. Why love God? 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Bless him. Honor him. Lift God up, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to his great mercy, according to his kindness, his abundance of kindness, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why love God? Because the Bible tells us we were spiritually dead in our own sins and in God's abundant kindness and mercy he sent Jesus to come make dead things alive he sent Jesus in love towards a spiritually dead person to give us new life and in the resurrection of Jesus we can trust and be certain that that new life is offered today because Jesus is alive today because he is still who he said he was, we can be certain that we too can be resurrected spiritually to a new and eternal life. That is why we love God. Because he came to us and he loved us first. And in Jesus, he makes us alive. But it gets better. 
We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance, talking about heaven, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only does God forgive our sins and give us new life in Jesus, he gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places along with Jesus. We're we're seated in the high places, Ephesians says, with Jesus. We're, We're promised a home, a future heavenly home with a God that will always increase in abundant joy for all of eternity. We're promised that and he keeps it and it will never, it will never fade away. It will never be defiled. It will never be imperishable. And he's guarding us. He's not going to let us slip away. He's not going to let us fall. He's not going to lose us. So he does everything from beginning to end for all of eternity. That is why he's worthy of our love. That is why he's worthy of our deepest affections is because he has literally done everything to make us alive and give us eternal life in glory with him forever. Blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. We have to ask if we do not want to praise him, is our heart far from him? If there's not a true joy in this reality, is it because our hearts have drifted from him? May our hearts be near to God. And we love him above all else and follow him knowing that he is for us and he is good. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.